Thank you for staying tuned to WRGC 88.3 FM. WRGC is a broadcast service of Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university. Coming up next at 8 o'clock, we kick off the 2017-2018 season of the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections. Tonight, joining me in the studio is Mass Communication Senior Lecturer Pate McMichael, who is here to talk about his upcoming Times Talk, Follow the Money, how the New York Times and the Washington Post broke the story on one of the largest presidential scandals since Watergate. That's coming up next on Georgia College Connections. Support for WRGC comes from Carlisle Place, Navicent Health. Serving active and independent seniors in the central Georgia area since 2001. Carlisle Place is a fully accredited life plan community located on a 58-acre campus in northwest Macon. Learn more at carlisleplace.org. You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM, a broadcast service of Georgia College. Georgia's public liberal arts university. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald. Now tonight, we're going to begin our 2017-2018 season of our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. As it is the beginning of this new season, I'm welcoming to the studio Dr. Jan Hoffman, and she wants to provide a special invitation to all of our radio audience members to come out and join us on the live events, the Times Talk each Wednesday in the Georgia College Library. Dr. Jan Hoffman. Good evening. I'm Dr. Jan Hoffman, professor of rhetoric at Georgia College and this year's coordinator for the American Democracy Project. I'd like to extend a special invitation to our Times Talk radio audience to attend our live conversations each Wednesday at noon in the Ina Dillard Russell Library. Each week, one or more members of the Georgia College community will host a lively discussion on topics of interest to the local, national, and international levels. Prior to each week's conversation, we post links to relevant articles from the New York Times and other publications to bring you up to speed on what we're talking about this week. To see a schedule of our Times Talk topics and to read this week's articles, find us on Facebook by searching for Georgia College American Democracy Project. And whether this is your first Times Talk or you're a regular listener, I want to welcome you to Times Talk. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman. And now let's begin with our special hour-long season premiere of the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections. Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Today, I'm happy to kick off our fall 2017 season of the Times Talk by welcoming back Pate McMichael, a senior lecturer in the Mass Communication Department here at Georgia College. He'll lead a conversation entitled, Follow the Money, How the New York Times and the Washington Post Broke the Biggest Presidential Scandal Since Watergate. 
Peyton McMichael, welcome back to Times Talk on Georgia College Connections. Thanks, Daniel. Great to be here. Well, very happy to be here, and maybe this is the start of a tradition in which uh, you set us off onto our course for the uh, Times Talk season each semester. I hope it's so. Yeah, me too. It's fun. All right, well, before we begin on this topic, I want to harken back to sometime about six months ago when you opened the spring 2017 season of the Times Talk. At that time, we focused on fake news, and now we're going to talk about the reemergence of two titans of the media industry and how they're hot on the trail of the biggest story in U.S. government since Watergate. So before we actually get into the meat of our conversation, have we righted the ship? Well, I don't think we've completely righted the ship, but there are some very positive things happening. I would say the quality of journalism has gotten a little bit better because there's been some significant investments in some of the legacy journalism publications. Whether it's gotten better at your local level or the state level, it depends on where you're living. It depends on how those companies are structured. And a lot of times it comes down to how many journalists and boots they have on the ground. So hopefully things will continue to get better in in our field because the work some of these journalists are doing are exceptionally important. Well, we got a lot to talk about today, especially looking at the subject we're looking at. So let's just get right into it. Of course, as your title indicates, the New York Times and the Washington Post are, together or separately, reporting the biggest presidential scandal since Watergate. In case our listeners have been under a rock for the last eight months or so, uh, they probably wouldn't be listening in that, in that sense. But I was wondering if you could lend your perspective and lay out the story as you see it. Sure. So obviously it's a very partisan type of story because depending on which horse you're backing, you're more or less likely to tune into this. A lot of people are calling the Trump-Russia scandal. I'm going to try to just stick to what I consider to be the facts of the case. Uh, how did it begin and where is it now and, and what's the significance of it? And I'm sure we'll lay that out over the course of the interview, but in my mind, this is a federal investigation into whether or not the Trump campaign colluded with the Russian government to try and sabotage Hillary Clinton's campaign and therefore put Mr. Trump in office. The intelligence community of the United States has concluded that the Russians made a very uh, sincere effort to influence our election and that the Russian government wanted to help the Trump campaign as part of a long-term plan to destabilize the West, particularly Western alliances and NATO. So that's the conclusion of you know the FBI and the CIA and the most powerful intelligence agencies in government. But the story from a journalistic point of view, how it became accessible to the public, really began with an article that the New York Times wrote during the actual election President Trump, when he wrapped up the nomination to be the, the candidate, hired a guy named Paul Manafort, who has a long career working with some pretty seedy dictators and, I would say, tyrants around the world to try to help them stay in power, win elections, accomplish political goals. And so he's, he's kind of a, a gun for hire that uh, many people had reached out to. And the New York Times exposed the fact that in Ukraine, a country that has an ongoing conflict with Russia, Mr. Manafort, working for what was called the Party of Regions, a very pro-Putin, pro-Russia political party, 
that he was being paid $12.7 million off the books. And they documented this by basically putting a picture of this ledger, this secret ledger that was found in Kiev uh, on the front page. And the story pretty straightforward. It says secret ledger in Ukraine list cash for Donald Trump's campaign chief. Well, that's really not about Donald Trump. That's about his campaign chairman. But then what had happened a few weeks previous was Hillary Clinton began to suffer in the polls because a bunch of emails from the Democratic Party started leaking. And these were hacked emails that we now know were most likely hacked by the Russians and distributed to WikiLeaks and then spread throughout the media atmosphere. And so as this story just continued to evolve, we also saw that in the fall, Paul Manafort used to work for a firm run by a guy named Roger Stone. He has a Richard Nixon tattoo on his back. He's an old friend of Donald Trump. And a couple weeks before WikiLeaks dropped another set of emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta, Roger Stone, who's known Trump forever, said it's about to be Podesta's time in the barrel. He predicted this leak. And there were also proof on Twitter that he had been in communication with this Russian hacker known as Guccifer II, the person believed to be an agent of the Russian government who's responsible for some of these hacks. And so that's how it began. And then after Mr. Trump won the election in very shocking fashion and began to transition, a bunch of other stories started coming out. There were allegations of inappropriate contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russian ambassador in Washington. And then I think the most explosive thing that's happened and really the backbone of the investigation was the leaking of what some people called the Steele dossier and what others called the Dodgy dossier. But this former British intelligence officer, Christopher Steele, was apparently paid by an opposition research firm in Washington to look into Donald Trump's connections in Russia. And this is basically what he concluded. He concluded that for five years, the Russians had been cultivating Trump as an asset And he also made the accusation that Donald Trump was working hand-in-hand with the Russians to sabotage Hillary Clinton's campaign. Another allegation in that dossier was that the Russians had what they call compromat or compromising information of a sexual nature against Donald Trump. And so this was a big deal. BuzzFeed published it. The president immediately called it libel and held a press conference and tried to debunk a number of the allegations in the dossier. We know now that uh, the FBI director, James Comey, briefed Donald Trump on this right as he was beginning preparing to take office. And as we all know now, several months later, FBI director Comey was fired by Donald Trump, who in his own words said he fired Comey because he felt that the Trump-Russia investigation was a distraction. That has led to the creation of a special counsel being run by uh, longtime FBI director Robert Mueller. And we now know that Robert Mueller has convened a grand jury. And we also know that President Trump's son, Paul Manafort, and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, held a meeting 
in Trump Tower with two individuals linked to the Russian intelligence service. So that's where we stand today. And, and I guess the question is whether or not Robert Mueller is going to be able to find evidence of direct collusion and whether or not he's going to attempt to prosecute members of the campaign or possibly even the president himself. Well, we've run out of time in this segment, and we are up to date now on the investigation. So we're going to take this opportunity for a short break. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections here on WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight, we're looking forward to tomorrow's Times Talk entitled Follow the Money, how the New York Times and the Washington Post broke the biggest presidential scandal since Watergate. Joining me in the studio is Georgia College Mass Communications Senior Lecturer Pate McMichael. He'll be leading that conversation, which takes place tomorrow at noon in the Georgia College Library. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. We're rekindling our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. If you're just joining us, today we are looking forward to tomorrow's Times Talk, which is entitled Follow the Money, How the New York Times and the Washington Post Broke the Biggest Presidential Scandal Since Watergate. I'm joined in the studio by Pate McMichael, the senior lecturer at the Georgia College Mass Communication Department. Now, in that last segment, we were talking about how we've gotten to where we are in the Russia-Trump scandal, however you might call it. In this section, I wanted to start off with a conversation about 
Pate, if you might break down for our audience, what exactly is at stake in this investigation? What are the allegations against the president? What evidence exists to support or deny those allegations? And what are the potential outcomes of these various investigations, included those conducted by members of Congress, the special counsel for the U.S. Justice Department, and the media? I don't think there could be anything bigger at stake. There appears to be the president's, his ability to govern the country is at stake and stay president is at stake, primarily because of the way he fired James Comey. If Robert Mueller is targeting the president, he's likely doing it under an obstruction of justice charge, which was very similar to what led to Nixon's resignation. Now, if we step back and say, is colluding with the Russians even a crime? The answer to that is yes, it is illegal under American law to take anything of value from a foreign government and use it to try to influence an election. And so that's why the meeting at Trump Tower between Trump's son, Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, meeting with two emissaries of the Russian government and releasing emails that make that black and white, that in fact they knew they were meeting with emissaries of the Russian government who wanted to help the Trump campaign, that gets pretty darn close to the spirit of that statue. And it's just a matter of whether or not Mueller and the grand jury are convinced that that's enough to prosecute one of those three members of Trump's inner circle. Now, what a lot of people think is happening is that Mueller's starting at the bottom and he's looking for somebody who's already broken the law. And many people believe that's Paul Manafort because he's accepted what's believed to be up to $100 million um, in money laundering, and he's brought that money into the United States and bought various properties around the country is the allegation. That's why the um, they raided his home the other day. It's, and now is that money laundering on behalf of uh, the Russian government, on behalf of uh, someone connected to or involved in the the Trump campaign? Is this some of these other entities for which he may have done uh, consulting work in the past, like uh, the um, leaders of the Ukrainian government under uh, Yushchenko? Right. Well, you see, Yushchenko is now in Russia and he's wanted for treason. And so, yes, some of the money comes from either pro-Russian interest or work that Paul Manafort did with Russian oligarchs. And there's even a report from the Associated Press that Paul Manafort took a contract, a million-dollar contract, that he knew was to try to benefit Putin's reputation in the United States. Um, He denies that to be true, but those are the things Robert Mueller's looking into. I think what's more interesting is that money laundering investigation appears to also be part of the investigation into Donald Trump. There's a reporter for The New Yorker named Adam Davidson who's going and looking at a lot of the deals that Trump made in in some of the Central Asian countries where he has properties. And what he's found is that a lot of these deals are similar to kind of what Paul Manafort was doing in Ukraine, working with governments that are notoriously corrupt and potentially violating American laws that make it illegal for Americans to pay bribes to foreign governments to get contracts. I remember a few years ago, Walmart was caught up in an investigation in Mexico similar to that. 
So there's a lot of questions about why Trump didn't release his taxes and whether or not the Russians in particular have viewed Trump and Trump properties in the United States and elsewhere as a place to park dirty money. I think if there's a bigger theme here, it's that Trump and Manafort may have been some conduit for Russian money laundering. And that might have been the nature of their original association. And that's why it would have made sense for the Russian government to approach Trump and try to help him. Because what the Russians wanted out of cooperating with Trump is they want these sanctions lifted. If we've learned anything from Iraq, it's that the sanctions were working there. And had we let them continue who knew how long Saddam could have stayed there? The sanctions work, and they've worked in a lot of places. And Russia's feeling the bite. Their economy's really struggling. And that's why Trump's people have said, no, the meeting was about adoptions, because when the United States imposed sanctions on Russia, Putin's response was he stopped all U.S. adoptions of Russian children. And I've known people personally who had their hearts broken because they had gone through this lengthy process to adopt Russian children, some kind of, in some cases orphans, and Putin stopped that. So when you hear the Trump administration say, no, we were talking about adoptions, it's very likely what that really means is the Russians were trying to negotiate the sanctions. It's backfired because now Congress has imposed new sanctions on Russia for trying to influence our election. And then reportedly Donald Trump was very furious about that legislation and that's why him and Mitch McConnell are on the outs. And what do you think are the potential outcomes of these investigations? I mean, if we are to go back and, and find some evidence of collusion, I mean, does that just affect the president of the United States? Does that throw into question the outcome of the last election? Or what area of the unknown neither do we find ourselves in you know, at the conclusion of these investigations? It's a scary thing to consider. For instance, I guess the most dramatic thing that could happen is that Donald Trump either resign or Congress pursue impeachment proceedings. Then the question I think people would have is, what did Mike Pence know? And did Mike Pence have any role in this? Uh, there's no proof of that at all. But if you remember Michael Flynn, General Flynn, who was Trump's pick for national security advisor, served very briefly before he had to resign for taking money from foreign governments while he was a member of the Trump campaign. And supposedly he lied about that to Mike Pence, and that was why he was let go. That's interesting because Michael Flynn's the reason, one of the reasons why there might be an obstruction of justice case against the president, because former FBI Director Comey alleges that President Trump asked him to drop the Flynn investigation. I think most likely what you'll see in the near term is you will probably see if there are criminal prosecutions, prosecutions of Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort, because both of them seem to be wrapped up in some clearly criminal activity. And the question is whether Robert Mueller will try to turn them into cooperating witnesses to go for something bigger like collusion between the Trump campaign, or whether he'll stop there and stop with the prosecutions of Trump's associates, or whether there'll be no prosecutions at all and all of this will just go away. I don't think that will happen. I don't think you're going to have everyone 
get away from this thing unscathed. There seem to be very serious allegations and a lot of hard evidence pointing towards criminal activity for Paul Manafort and General Flynn. Well, it's happened again. We're out of time in this segment, so we're going to take another short break. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to a special Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections right here on WRGC 88.3 FM. Of course, as you're hearing this, please consider it your invitation to come out and join the conversation live at noon Wednesday in the Georgia College Library for the in-person Times Talk event. This Wednesday, my guest, Pate McMichael, will be leading the conversation, Follow the Money, how the New York Times and the Washington Post broke the biggest presidential scandal since Watergate. Stay tuned, and we'll pick up the conversation right here on Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to 
Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. As the school year has let in, we are rekindling our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. Of course, the Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place at noon Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. It's free and open to the public, so if you're enjoying our conversation today and want to get involved in the discussion, please consider coming Coming out again at noon Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. Our next Times Talk is on the topic, Follow the Money, how the New York Times and the Washington Post broke the biggest presidential scandal since Watergate. I'm joined in the studio today by Georgia College Mass Communication Senior Lecturer, Pate McMichael. That last segment, we were talking about what's at stake with the investigations that are going on. I wanted to continue down that road, uh, but take it from a different angle. Now, there are a lot of things on the table. One of the threads that has been running throughout the investigations and the media examination is a failure to disclose conversations, failure to disclose relationships with foreign governments. And I'm just wondering, that seems to be the one thing that we can point to as most definitely have having happened. I'm just curious, if that is the only thing that we can prove out of this, what does it mean for a media industry that has stopped the presses to follow this story at every turn? That's a great question. If no one is indicted, no one goes to jail, and it turns out that these conversations between Trump associates and the Russian ambassador were innocuous, not criminal in nature, there would be a moment to reflect and say, what was driving that? Was it bias? Was it anti-Trump bias? Was it sour grapes about the election? I mean, we've heard the president already kind of lay the outline for that argument. And I think there's something to look into there. I also think that that's a big if. And it seems to me that we went from talking about smoke to fire when we learned about the meeting that happened in Trump Tower. And what I mean by that is two of those individuals in that meeting are clearly, clearly a part of the Russian effort to try and reach out to the Trump campaign. I also want to read you this. This was from a Washington Post story. We talked a lot about the New York Times. But they wrote an article about how the Obama administration tried to handle the situation and ultimately you know, could not prevent the Russians from seizing the emails and turning it into a big part of the election. But it apparently, President Obama actually received a report at the highest level of intelligence from deep inside the Russian government detailing President Vladimir Putin's direct involvement in a cyber campaign to disrupt the presidential race and specifically. Putin, in his apparently his own words, instructing his people to make sure that Clinton was damaged. So a conspiracy that big to me does merit tremendous media coverage. And I think people do get tired of hearing speculation. They get tired of anonymous sources. Unfortunately, in, in a story like this, when you're talking about spies and foreign agents, you're going to have anonymous sources. And you had that in Watergate. And the American public during Watergate didn't believe it at all until all of a sudden people started going to jail. 
I think if you get an indictment from Robert Mueller, that will completely change the tone of this. You will start to see fear in things like the stock market because that will create tremendous uncertainty. It's not going to be as simple as Trump resigning and Mike Pence taking over. I think some people think, hey, I'd take that if you're a conservative and you didn't love Trump. But they probably don't realize what could also come out of that, which would be much deeper scrutiny of the Trump administration. Currently, we have three congressional investigations going on. It could become 10, 15. I mean, you know, if they start proving this, there's going to need to be an accounting, a massive 9-11 style commission accounting of what happened. And I think the intelligence committees in Congress are attempting to do something like that now, but they all have separate investigations. They don't appear to be really cooperating together. And so that tells you that it hasn't gotten to the level of seriousness that uh, will come if it's the opposite of what we're suggesting. If it becomes fire and people go to jail, uh, but if it's not, then the media will take a huge beating uh, even I mean, I don't know how they could take a worse beating than they're taking right now every day from the president. But, you know, the public will certainly feel betrayed and they'll feel like maybe this was just about ratings and not about, you know, really getting to the truth. I have found the journalists that are doing this story are some of the best journalists I've ever followed. And their reporting has generally been extremely accurate. There have been stories that were not accurate, and that was true in Watergate. The Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein, made a really big error in Watergate that almost stopped the investigation. So we won't know, but I think there are big stakes for everybody, including the media. And let's use that as an opportunity to take that turn right now and start looking at the men and women in organizations behind the curtain who are are propelling this coverage Now, you said that you are following some of the best journalists uh, that you've ever encountered in your life. Is this a case of an industry rising to the occasion? Perhaps, as you mentioned before, exacting a vendetta, as some people would like to consider it, benefiting from an influx of capital or maybe even perhaps new technologies? What is going on that is allowing us to see the best from what has been a embattled industry? first thing that got the story rolling were the leaks. Uh, there's no doubt that there were people in government that just couldn't stomach Trump, and they started leaking. And a lot of those were probably in the CIA. It seems so long ago, but Trump had a tremendous beef with the CIA. And somebody started leaking a lot of the signal intelligence that had been captured because the Russian ambassador was under surveillance, like all ambassadors are under surveillance by the NSA. And the basis for some of those contacts we talked about, those inappropriate contacts between Michael Flynn and the Russian ambassador, that was clearly leaked to the journalists. So I I don't know that I give them all that credit. You don't need many journalists to do that. But the fact that they've been able to take the story and then continue to encourage people to come out and to publish it fearlessly, take the criticism from the public, and have editors and advertisers stand behind them, I think, to me, that has obviously changed the tone of the conversation among fellow journalists because journalism has been in a bad spot for a long time. We've seen dwindling resources, dwindling opportunities. It appears that 
the New York Times, for instance, has been able to really turn the corner and become a digital first publication, and they don't have to worry about printed paper anymore taking them down. And the same is happening at the Washington Post, where they have found Jeff Bezos of Amazon, and he has really helped them invest in the paper and also just make their technology really good. So they're, they're breaking a lot of these stories in very non-traditional ways. They're publishing stories generally late in the afternoon when you're used to seeing the biggest stories break in the morning when the paper hit. They're in such fierce competition that I think they're trying to get these stories out as soon as they can verify them. And that will lead to inaccuracies and mistakes. But for the most part, with very limited personnel compared to years past, like Watergate, They've been doing a tremendous job, but that's my opinion. Well, for this segment, let's let's leave it there. We've still got more to come. Of course, if you're just joining us, you're listening to a Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections here on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the upcoming Times Talk, which will take place at noon tomorrow in the Georgia College Library. It's on the topic Follow the Money, How the New York Times and the Washington Post Broke the Biggest Presidential Scandal Since Watergate. I'm joined in the studio by Pate McMichael, the senior lecturer with the Georgia College Mass Communication Department. He'll be leading that conversation tomorrow, again at noon in the Georgia College Library. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you're just joining us, we are looking forward to tomorrow's Times Talk. It's the first of the fall 2017 semester. It'll take place at noon, Wednesday, tomorrow in the Georgia College Library. It's a free and open to the public event. The topic of tomorrow's Times Talk will be Follow the Money, how the New York Times in the Washington Post broke the biggest presidential scandal since Watergate. Joining me in the studio is senior lecturer of the Georgia College Mass Communication Department, Peyton McMichael. Now, in that last segment, we made the turn to start talking about the media environment in which this story is breaking out and some of the changes that are taking place in the media right now and how we view the media. One of the other threads that has kept cropping up through this story is that about sourcing. In that last response, you were talking about how this really began with leaks from the government. I thought we might start off with the conversation just about sourcing and the ethics of sourcing. I want to start with perhaps a more of a devil's advocate comment in that we're talking about this conspiracy to undermine Western legitimacy by the Russian government. Of course, a broken clock is right at least twice a day. The president of the United States has on his own taken us down into the ditch to say that they're not so bad we're guilty of some of these things ourselves. When we're getting leaks out of the intelligence agencies in the United States, with what level of scrutiny should we view this information coming out, knowing their history of engagement in other areas of U.S. society, international society, but then also noting that they've been in a long feud with this incoming administration? You always have to be very skeptical. I mean, anybody that lived through the buildup to the Iraq war knows that the New York Times was getting leak after leak after leak from Dick Cheney's office regarding how serious the weapons program was for Saddam. And, of course, when we got to Iraq, those weapons weren't there. So I think, particularly at the New York Times, there's tremendous skepticism that someone has an agenda and that they're trying to manipulate the press it will probably be decades before we even know some of the sources of this information. But if I had to guess, these are pretty high-level sources, similar to Deep Throat, which we now know Deep Throat was the number two man at the FBI that leaked to Woodward and Bernstein of the Washington Post during Watergate. And because he had access to such high-level intelligence and because one of the reporters had a personal relationship with him, they would take that information, and then they would go try to verify it. And so usually it'll start with someone giving them a tip, and then they have to go out and try to get other people, maybe other leakers, to confirm it. They don't just run with the first rumor they hear. I know some people want to believe that, but they understand the consequences if they're wrong. They know what can happen, like CNN ran a bogus story about Scarmucci. They claimed he was tied up in the Trump-Russia investigation, and they took the story down within minutes. And for days, the administration just really, really hammered CNN. And I think that was fair game because they made a huge mistake. They ran a story that they had not verified. But you also have to think about leaks as the only way for the public to be made aware of things that may be 
bad and maybe criminal. And so I think we're talking really here about someone's personal ethic and what they can live with and sleep with at night and what they can't. Obviously, some people in the intelligence community have deep reservations about what went on during the election between Trump and Russia. We now know, for instance, that there was a FISA warrant regarding members of the Trump campaign that these people were being wiretapped because they thought they might be they might be Russian agents. We know that because someone leaked that to, you know, the media. I think the American public has a right to know that. I think it is something that gets right to the core of the First Amendment, why we have it. If journalists went on the other end to publish this information, no one would leak. It would be stupid. You'd lose your job or you wouldn't get information out. And I think the trust that they're putting in in these institutional legacy publications is not because they're liberal or they're anti-Trump. It's that they trust them to take the information and keep it in context and present it accurately. Do they always do that? No, because it's, it's very difficult. And a lot of this information is intelligence information. It can be wrong, even though it might have been procured in a very competent way. High stakes on all sides involved in this presidential scandal. Today, you are listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. This is a Times Talk edition of our weekly Georgia College Connections. The Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place in the Georgia College Library at noon each Wednesday. Tonight, we're previewing tomorrow's conversation entitled Follow the Money, How the New York Times and the Washington Post Broke the Biggest Presidential Scandal Since Watergate. I'm joined in the studio by Mass Communication Senior Lecturer Pate McMichael. We'll be back with more Georgia College Connections.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. The new school semester has started, and so that, of course, means it's time for the Times Talk Conversations to start taking place again each week in the Georgia College Library. They have it at noon on Wednesdays. We're previewing the one that will take place tomorrow. So, of course, consider this your invitation to come out and join in this conversation each Wednesday at noon in the Georgia College Library. Tomorrow's Times Talk will be Follow the Money, How the New York Times and the Washington Post Broke the biggest presidential scandal since Watergate. In the studio talking with me about it is Pate McMichael of the Georgia College Mass Communication Department. Now, of the three articles you presented, two, of course, were directly about the scandal that continues to unfold in Washington, really in in the psyches of of Americans and probably people across the world. But you threw in a a kind of almost a curveball, I would say, in that you included a political article entitled The Not-So-Bitter Rivalry Between Dean Baquet and Marty Barron. And that chronicles the relationship in competition between the editors of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Now, I'm curious. It's a long article. Why did you include this one in this conversation? I think the reason I included it is simply because without these two men at the helm of the two best newspapers in the country, we might not be having this conversation. I think one of the lessons of Watergate was if the press had not continued to put pressure on the FBI to investigate President Nixon, then it very well could have been that Nixon wrote it out. And I think you're seeing a very similar parallel here. Every night for the last, I would say, seven months, eight months, it seems that people are just waiting for 5.30, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock for a story to drop on this Trump-Russia investigation. And most nights, it's either the New York Times or the Washington Post putting that article out. And those articles fuel a competition that keeps the story moving and keeps new allegations emerging. Otherwise, it appears we might have never got a special counsel, for instance. If Jim Comey had not been fired, for instance, would we be talking about this today? I would say that part of the responsibility for Comey's firing was the fact that Trump could not stand the pressure that was emerging in the media night after night with these new allegations. So Dean Baquet and Marty Barron, Dean Baquet is editor of the New York Times, Marty Barron's editor of the Washington Post. They are both very famous in our world of journalism. They are both very accomplished journalists, Pulitzer Prize. Uh, they've been on staffs that have won Pulitzers if they haven't won one themselves. They've been reporters. They've been editors. Marty Barron received tremendous fame recently. He was the editor portrayed in the movie Spotlight, which was about how the Catholic Church in Boston had really covered up some of the molestation cases or many of the molestation cases. And that, of course, kicked off an international investigation that continues today. So Marty Barron has clearly got higher star power. But what's been interesting is to see how he's also had a smaller staff and he's been able to crank out really big scoops that you would expect the New York Times to get. We were talking earlier that the New York Times has about double the number of reporters than the Washington Post, and yet they are very much in a locked horns battle to get the next scoop. And just to give an example, the Trump Tower story that broke was originally broken by the New York Times, and then another piece of it came from the Washington Post, and then the next day another piece came from the New York Times. So when you see that happening, 
you know that they are just burning the midnight oil. And these journalists are working through the night over weekends to try to find someone who will confirm what they have good reason to believe to be true. Without that, time is the enemy because the public is fed up with this. They're tired of hearing about it. They, you know, they want to know, is there anything to it or is it not? And so I'm sure people in the FBI and the Justice Department are feeling tremendous pressure from the administration, whether it's direct or just reading the president's tweets. They know that they don't have forever to get to the bottom of this, even with the special counsel. There's been, for instance, threats to fire the special counsel. There's been threats to replace the current attorney general. And all of these have come straight from the president. So you need powerful institutions. And what's cool about this story in Politico is that Dean Baquet and Marty Barron just happen to be really, really good friends who go to art galleries together. Uh, So it's almost surreal that these two guys who once both wanted this job at the New York Times that Dean Baquet have, that even though one of them would get the job, the other would reinvent himself by going to the Boston Globe, win a Pulitzer, and now be in the position that they're in, and remain friends. It sets a great example for what journalism should be, hyper-competitive, hyper-aggressive, looking out for the public, being a watchdog, and fearless in the face of real intimidation. And I'm curious, how can media organizations like this work together and compete at the same time? And by that, I mean, as you're talking about almost these checkerboard matches of coming with you know, further progress on these stories, I, is there enough collegiality to respect the reporting or is there time being spent confirming what the other paper has or what the other media organization has come up with? I mean, are, is it a symbiotic relationship or is it a a straight competition? I think it's hard to say. There is a lot of collaboration going on in journalism, but it's not between the New York Times and the Washington Post. That would be really interesting if that were to happen. What I do notice on Twitter, if you, you the great thing about Twitter is you can follow the reporters individually. You can put a face behind the story, and, and you'll occasionally see them retweeting each other's work or applauding each other's work. I don't think I've ever seen them attacking one another or appearing to have any real animosity towards each other. So to me, it reminds me of what a good sport should be like. Like if me and a buddy are battling on a golf course, we're trying to beat each other, but we're also pulling for each other to play our best. And in some sports, in other sports, that doesn't happen, but in golf it does. And I think you're seeing a similar thing happen with this competition. What I think makes it even more interesting to me is How were they able to continue to find new sources of information, knowing that now there are really a lot of competition? I want to mention just some other folks breaking stories on this. Associated Press has broken big stories. NBC News has broken big stories. CNN has broken a lot of big stories on this. Reuters has broken stories on this. The Guardian uh, newspaper has broken stories on this. And... Also, the Wall Street Journal has broken stories on this. So we have just seen this competition between the New York Times and the Washington Post create an atmosphere that has inspired many other journalists, including McClatchy, 
which is one I really like to mention. McClatchy's not well known, but they were the one news outlet that didn't buy into the leaks that built up to the Iraq war. There's apparently a movie coming out about that that people can look out for. And of course, yeah, people may not know the name McClatchy, but they do know the name uh, Macon Telegraph and Columbus Ledger Inquirer, which um, were McClatchy paper or are which are McClatchy papers. Right. If you if you go to the McClatchy Washington Bureau uh, on Twitter uh, or Facebook, you know you'll see you can read their their uh, national work, and they have a lot of community newspapers around the country. Well, Pate, we're out of time in this conversation. We're out of our allotted time. We could continue the conversation, and we will be continuing the conversation as the story continues to unfold. But for your Times Talk audience out there tomorrow, I want to ask you the perennial Times Talk question. What do you hope your audience members gain from the conversation at the Times Talk? The one thing I hope the audience, including the students, gain from this is an understanding The civics involved, first of all, being able to follow the story and understand that this is going through a constitutional process that is pretty sacred and is pretty fragile. And also to focus on the facts behind this, not the partisanship. You mentioned fake news earlier, right? It's it's become a meaningless term. It's become, for some people, a term for facts that I don't agree with. But true facts, right, are establishable and they won't change even as history progresses. And there have been facts established in this story. And to really understand where we are and to really make up your own mind about whether there may be collusion between Trump and Russia, I think you're going to have to learn to look at the facts and discern for yourself what they mean because we may not get prosecutions that will not necessarily mean that there was not collusion. We could also get people going to jail, but no real clear resolution about was the election sabotaged. But that's the takeaway. You know, this was our election, and a foreign power stepped in and wreaked havoc. And we have to wonder, you know, in three years from now, how many other foreign powers will be emboldened to try to sway it. Will foreign money come into our elections? What are we going to do as a society to stop this? Well, Peyton, it's always a pleasure having you in here. I'm glad to see that you're starting off this season of the Times Talk, just as you did last semester, with some really thought-provoking, dig-deeper-into-the-news-you-get conversations for the young people here at Georgia College, but also for our radio audience and those audiences who will come in just to hear you speak on Wednesday. So I want to thank you. Thank you. It was fun. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we are re-premiering our Times Talk collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College. Each week at noon on Wednesdays, the American Democracy Project at Georgia College hosts the Times Talk in the Ina Dillard Russell Library on the campus of Georgia College in downtown Milledgeville. It's a weekly current events and ideas symposium it's free and open to the public so if you enjoyed our conversation today please consider coming out and joining the discussion live in person at noon on wednesdays today we were looking forward to the times talk entitled follow the money how the new york times and the washington post broke the biggest presidential scandal since watergate joining me in the studio to talk about it and to lead tomorrow's times talk is pate mcmichael I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.